Today, I'm talking to Stephen Ferrara, co-founder of the Hudson Advisory Group of Compass, ranked number four in New York City by the Wall Street Journal and number 40 in the United States. Still early in his career, he has over $1 billion sold and record-breaking sales that include 517 West 29th Street that he closed at $54,750,000. He shares his stories, the path that led him to real estate, and how situations that might have looked like letdowns or disappointments actually set him up for success. We talk about the mindset for record-breaking deals and a strong team. Thanks for listening to the Jerry Metcalf podcast, where top real estate agents tell how they do it. This podcast was created for real estate agents across the country to come together, sharing ideas to take your, their, and our business to the next level. All right, everybody, it's the Jerry Metcalf podcast, where top real estate agents tell how they do it. And today we have Stephen Ferrara in New York City to tell us how he does it. Steven, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Lovely finally meeting you in person last week. Yeah, good to finally meet you in person last week in I've, Miami. I've intentionally been elusive to podcasts. I was playing hard to get, but you won. Here we right. are. Right, good. Everybody hear yeah. that? Yeah, she won. She won. I love, whatever. Hey, you were here. It's you love awesome. winning. I feel like the winner here, so let's we go. Like, we're going to let you are the winner. That's why you're here, by the way. Love that. So everybody heard the intro, but he did 300, his team is at 350 million this year, three years into being a team. Last year, 280 million, number four in the city. This year, you guys are number three in the city. Um, well, and they, haven't, they haven't done our rankings yet for this year. And okay, so I, I hate to rely on numbers. Um, I think okay. it's dull. We were speaking when I met you in Miami that, um, you know, when I have these conversations with other team leaders who are in many respects, people I admire, our numbers are very isolated because of where we are. And New York City property values are obviously, you know, much higher than they are in other places of the country. So 350 million sounds like an incredible amount of real estate. It certainly is. Come on, you're ruining my show, Stephen. Oh, stop it. I'm kidding. Stop it. 350 million is still a lot. So, but can you tell us what you're that, tell us more about that. dollar penthouses, it's, it's easier to get there. Yeah. You know, some markets where the, the top sales categories are five million. That's all. Like Atlanta. Exactly. I was doing this for you. We actually go a little over from me in Atlanta. You're welcome. Little, but we are very, very, our, well, this isn't on Atlanta, but our market is interesting. It's very different from New York. We'll leave it at that. Fair. So back to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your team, how you work, why you got into real estate. Kind of just give us your story and then we'll take it from there. Oh, I hope it's not too boring. Um, myself, I'm 34 years old. I live in New York City. Um, I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, about 10 miles outside of New York. And the general path from Montclair, New Jersey was to, you know, get through school and then move to the city. Um, so I very much followed that path. Uh, I started in the hospitality industry. I graduated college in 2008 in the worst job market ever. Uh, I was supposed to go work at Lehman Brothers. Uh, in hindsight, it's a blessing that I did not. And I got into hospitality first at the Peninsula Hotel, which is you know regarded as one of the best hotel brands in the world. So I really learned client services there. 
And then I transitioned downtown into the hospitality industry and the sort of another faction of it, which is the restaurant, nightclub, lounge industry in the famed meatpacking district, which was very different 10 years ago when I was in my early 20s than it is today. Um, from there, I met, I had exposure to, you know, a lot of really incredible people. Um, I took, my job was operations. I was a partner in a nightclub. I helped open some of the restaurants and lounges. And I realized very fast that that life was not meant for me. I think it's an incredible life if you can make it work, but it's, we work a lot, you know, for you and I, we work seven days a week, but in many respects, we control our own destiny. In that world, you're working six days a week, but you're working for someone else. And in order to get up the, uh, the food chain, if you will, I noticed the owners were still there Saturday nights. The owners were still there doing books Sundays. I didn't want that. Um, so um, I left for quality of life reasons. I wanted to get into real estate. It was something I understood. I owned investment properties that I bought at the bottom of the market when I just graduated college. Um, so it was something I felt like I could wrap my head around. And I had a wonderful network from having exposure to all these people in downtown Manhattan. Wow. So the year, so basically you graduated college in 08. Yes. You then were in the hospitality industry with Peninsula Hotels until what year? What year? Um, maybe two thousand. how many years? I was with the Peninsula for about two and a half years, and then I went to okay. EMM Group, which right now is probably most noted, noted for Catch Restaurant and Catch Hospitality Group. It has changed okay. from when I worked there to where they are today. Um, Catch okay. is uh, a nationwide restaurant. There's, I believe, three outposts. That I, I'm sure there's some international outposts I'm not even aware of. Um, but I helped open the restaurant and the roof, which was their sort of lounge. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, so you, what I love about it is hospitality was first. So you learned about customer service, people. And then second, you're with the, you're basically doing operations for you know, the bar scene, for lack of a better word. And so you learned operations. So I learned operations and I learned it in a very fast paced environment. Exactly. A very high stakes environment. I mean, not to disclose financials, it's closed now, so I guess I can. And I'm very close right. with the owners, so maybe they won't care. But there was a moment where I was working at 10 June, which was a nightclub, and I was a general manager there. And that was the highest grossing nightclub per square foot in New York City history. So. Wow. Give you context. I mean, there were weeks that we did, you know, fifty thousand in net revenue on a Saturday night, or a hundred thousand throughout the week. I mean, that's a real operation. And I was twenty-five years old, and yeah. not that I didn't have any oversight, didn't have assistant general managers. There were other partners who were involved, but I was running the show, so to say. Uh, and it was a very fast-paced environment. I dealt with very uh, wealthy people that had very high expectations of what customer service and client relations meant. And I think I really cut my teeth dealing with them. Exactly. So you, I mean, it's kind of like Steve Jobs says, you look back and suddenly it makes sense how things were happening moving forward to where you are today. Totally. What would you say, so kind of taking this in two directions because I'll preface this with a 350 million, you're humble about it, but you're 34 years old running a team with doing 350 million a year, New York City, whatever, that you're number three in the city, just to kind of put clarity on that, number three, number four, whatever, maybe four. you'll be number one before we know it. I'm sure oh, you will. God willing. Right, but, that's, but that said, there's something to be said for that. I think there's a lot of 
focus in our business on just winning deals and how to get deals, which is a lot of fun. But I think to be able to do that well, you've got to be really good at customer service and operations. So it's interesting. You know, I look back in the first, I've only been in the business about seven years now. Um, So if you think about trajectory and I got in in a bull market with no experience, which was very challenging. Uh, And I had a lot of losses before I had any wins. There was a moment where I almost left the business. So we can, we can touch on that if you think it's let's helpful. Do. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, so we know how you, you we know what you what was before and you told us you decided like, I need a different life. I love real estate. Let's do this real estate thing. What did that look like going into it? How hard was it to get your it, first deal and how'd you get it? It looked, uh, you know, to me, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I think the people around you will tell you. Um, so to me, it looked a lot like rainbows and butterflies. And I thought, you know what? I know everybody in downtown New York. I lived downtown. I lived in the city now for 13 years at the time for, you know, six or seven years. I know these streets better than anyone. And I have this incredible network of clients and friends, right? In, in the hospitality industry, everybody who's your client, because it's a social environment and nobody wants to deal with a stiff person, there's, there's a level of, of friendship there as well and a level of trust, particularly when people are coming in and spending $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 on tables, right? There's a level of trust and there's a level of respect that's there. Um, I looked at everything through the positive lens and I thought rainbows and butterflies, this is going to be great. I'm going to be number one. I'm going to do all of these deals and it's just going to be just perfect. And I realized very fast that that was not the reality. Um, it took me 11 months to do my first deal. I had done a handful of small rentals. I got into the business and I thought, I know all these people I'm going to do. I remember telling my first, uh, manager, it's Gray, who's at Halstead property management now, or Halstead man, Halstead real estate. Now, um, I remember telling her that I thought I would do five rentals a week. And she said, how many, do you, you know, what's your goal setting? I said, I think I'm going to do 250 deals a year. And it was my first week in business. Wow. He goes, and she had a big smile on her face and she got up and shut the door and because I get excited and my voice carries. And I said, yeah, 250, you know, why not? And she said, do you really think you're going to do that? I said, yeah. She said, that's wonderful. I'm so excited. It's, you're so passionate. This is so great. You're so driven. Um, How are you going to do that? And I said, well, it's pretty simple. I know X amount of people. I went through my phone. I have this many contacts. I figure if I have right. you know, 10% of them each week want to do something, then that's how. And it was very much. I mean, at least you had, like, at least you calculated. There was a method to the madness. Exactly. It was very clear in about 90 days into it that that was not how this business worked. And I think I yeah. got to it relatively naive, like a lot of people who get into the business today. And yeah. Think, because they've seen million dollar listing or these other shows that make it seem like everything is so easy and it's just everyone gets these big checks and deals are just so easy to win and clients just totally trust you and respect you and there's no downside to any of this and and your time isn't wasted or spent in the wrong direction at all i i came in with the same attitude that you know what everybody who's my friend is going to be my client and all my clients are going to respect my time and everyone's going to transact with me and for me, it wasn't about the transaction itself. We always say we're, we're long-term greedy. I have a long-term view on the business. And because of that, I just thought it was, I was going to build my flywheel, you know, year one, 
and it would just be off to the races and I'd just do deals for my phone all day. So it's very, very clear that that's not actually what happened. Right, so you figure, everybody kind of figures out pretty quickly that it doesn't work that way. Doesn't work. What went through your mind when you figured out it wasn't going to work that way? And how did you figure out how to make it work? Because you made it work pretty well anyway. Can, can I curse on the podcast or no? Please. Absolutely. No, everybody who's offended, I, just close your ears. Anyway, go ahead. What, uh, went through my we, mind. We do on this podcast occasionally. Perfect. What went through my mind was, fuck. Well, and that's every other word in New York. What's that? Fuck is every other, every other, like in, in Atlanta, oh, yeah, it's sure, kind of sure. like, but that's what went through my it's mind. Like every other word, but it was a big one. Was, yeah. oh my God, what am I going to do? I've spent all the money I've saved. I, uh, I have no path to figuring this business out any better than I did before I got into it because I was so, I was thinking about the deal and I wasn't thinking higher level, higher level. And what it really, it, it took me to get to that place to take a step back and analyze what I really wanted out of the business and where I really thought my time should be spent and the clients I wanted to work with, not what was in front of me, but what was at the time out of reach. So I took a step back and I mm -hmm. thought, it's very clear the rental game is not for me. I hated it. It's a, it's a very different business than, than what we do in New York City. Um, everything, there's something called Street Easy. All of the, the prospective tenants can just go on and see the same inventory you can see. There's very difficult to add value, in my opinion. And I and I realized that in the first six months in the business. And I said, okay, I need to I need to pivot here. How am I going to pivot? And my pivot was into the luxury sales market. I knew that I knew luxury. I knew that I knew client services. I dealt with extremely wealthy people before, so I understood what they the the level of expectation when you're spending real money and the level of service that they expect. And again, I knew the streetscapes. I lived downtown, I lived on these streets. I, had a, I have a dog, I walk my dog on these streets. I knew buildings and I love architecture. So I would always stop, I'd walk my dog, I'd look at a building, think that's beautiful, I'd take a picture, I'd go home, I'd go on Property Shark and I'd be up till 2 a.m. every night in front of my computer researching and Googling and who's this person and who bought that townhouse? And before you knew wow. it, I knew everything about my market, which was my became my zone, which is, the downtown luxury market before I had transacted it. Wow. It interesting. And I remember so meeting, again, back to like, it was like you were being set up for this and you just weren't cognizant of in it. In hindsight, it's all very clear. At the time it was, I have no idea what I'm doing until I figured out what I was doing. And yeah. I remember seeing top brokers and I'd go on all these property tours to, I wanted to understand who these top brokers were and how they became top brokers. Yeah. What they did and what they wore and how they spoke and how they interacted with their colleagues, and when they showed houses, what their mannerisms were. And I really studied that because it was something that was clearly they had mastered and something that I definitely had not. Um, in another line of work I had, but in this line of work I had not. So wow. I remember, and I just ran into this broker who I'll, will remain nameless about 15 minutes ago on a property tour, and he said to me, and I'll never forget it, I, I did a townhouse deal with him, and I said, that was such a great transaction. Thank you for making it so smooth. It typically is not. Um, it's a stress-free or it's a stressful process. And New York, New York City is, is uh, New York City real estate is not for the faint of heart, to say the least. So right. New York City is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> not, it's not. But he said to me, I remember you knew the business. You knew this market better than most people who were in the market before you ever did any business. He's yeah. like, and that's when I knew that I would do a deal with you. And we, we did a really big building deal and it was great. Um, 
that being said, that pivotal moment was taking a step back and realizing what didn't work and what wasn't working and analyzing what I wanted out of it. So it, it goes almost dovetails into the why. And the why is, you know, your purpose and, and your thesis mm-hmm. in business. And that's really the driving force. So fast forward from then till now, um, I did my first actual sale in my 11th month in the business. And I remember that clearly because I had one month's rent left in my bank account. And if I did not do that deal, it was how am I going to pay rent? And where yeah. and, and am I leaving? Am I moving home at, at 27, 26 years old to live with my parents? Not fun. No. That's, that's a no. And am I going back to the hospitality business? And that was a, I really don't want to do this. I yeah. really don't want to do that. And finally, from there, the dominoes kind of fell. And I did, I had a very consistent business, which was, I did, my first deal was 2.2 million. It was a co-op deal with a foreign buyer. It was the first foreign buyer in the building. So the process was very far from streamlined or very far from, uh, something the board was familiar with. So it was a very challenging deal. I also sold that client's uh, current department, the apartment that they had, I represented them as the buyer and then the seller. And it was a tenancy in common building that was all cash, no financing allowed in a carriage house in Nolita. So it's like wow. I, I had two of the most complicated deals I've seen in my career as my first two deals. That was a good, that was a good little breaking into the market. It was daunting to say the least. I relied on my managers for a lot of help, and um, I, I, I definitely count you know sleepless nights. Um, but both of them closed successfully, and that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. And the confidence yep. is what propelled me to. And you can't fake confidence. You can't. You can fake everything else, but confidence. It's they read it, and if you don't have it, it doesn't. Exactly. Work. It makes everybody uncomfortable. So you said two things that are going to, I know, play into the rest of this conversation, but I want to make sure we don't miss them. Because you said when you were kind of going through the, what am I doing, making that decision, getting into real estate, you, know, you said you really paid attention to the, how top brokers perform. And then you also said something about, I really had to realize what didn't work. And I'd love to know and, and kind of bleed this into more about your career as we move forward. But that being said, when, and you may even remember things looking back on it, but as you went to that, what did you notice? What did you feel as a new agent? And what do you know now as an experienced agent? Is that top, what are the common denominators? Because everybody's so different, but they're always common denominators. That's tough. I think, I think the reality is honesty. Um, I think confidence, we just touched on it. If you're not Mm -hmm. confident, we, we're in a world where everybody has so much information that's readily accessible, readily available at your fingertips. So you need to be so confident in your messaging and so good at what you do, regardless of what you do, that whoever you're dealing with trusts you and actually believes what you're telling them. And I always say, you know, it's a line from Jay-Z. Thank you, Jay-Z. You can quote me on that. But it's, the Jay-Z, uh, John Zimmerman, Jay-Z? No, Jay-Z, Sean Carter, Jay-Z. Oh, see, Jay-Z in my mind is like, I'm thinking you're talking about the bro- Compass Broker, Fort Worth, Texas. Just so Shout know. out to Jay-Z, John Zimmerman, too. Um, but I'm yes. talking about Jay-Z, Sean Carter. And he said, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. And I think that there's so much data, but the data can be skewed to, it, it can be manipulated in many respects. Yeah. Our job is to 
give honest data and interpret it for the client. And they're going to synthesize it however they want to, which is challenging. Some clients only see the, the, the good data versus the bad. Um, but our job is to give them information and also digest it for them and tell them what's going on in real time. So you touch on operations. To be clear, I'm the co-founder of the Hudson Advisory with my partner, Clayton, but I'm very much out doing deals. As much as I'm leading the team and we co-lead the team and we have a full operation in our back office, um, we are still out as brokers and agents doing deals every day. Because of that, I think it's, we have a, a competitive advantage and we give our clients edge because we have so much deal flow. That three hundred fifty million dollars a year—that's that's done by ten agents on the team, and it's from four five hundred thousand dollars to fifty-five million dollars. Exactly. Right? We see everything in between, and we talk about everything in between. So our market's very much bifurcated by neighborhood. It's bifurcated by price point. Because right. of that, you have to be very good at what whatever it is your zone is. We always say stay in your lane. I know my lane, and I stay in it. If you're asking me about Harlem or financial district, I don't know anything about either of those markets. That's I love it. I love that you just said that because we just interviewed. It actually comes out like by the time this interview comes out, it'll have been two weeks, but you haven't heard it yet. But Eric Sidman on your team is your Brooklyn specialist. You got to him before you got to me. Unbelievable. I uh, know. Well, you know, you people on your team and he, the people you on your team produce, a, you know, there's this, not every team, but there are some people that have this, you know, notion that you get on a team because you're new. And, you know, I think your model and mine's a little bit similar. You cut, you bring somebody on the team because they fit their experts and they they represent and reflect what you do. That very different than getting on a team because you're new. In fact, we don't have anyone on the team who's green. We have nobody on the team who does not have a, a background in real estate. Exactly. Uh, everybody had their own individual careers and everybody on our team is handpicked. I think it's very important to, you know, Clayton and, and myself who were the founders. I mean, we always say we dated for, for 18 months before we, before we got married. And um, <laughs> right. what I mean by that is we were, you know, we walked down the aisle very slow. We took a lot of time and we're very thoughtful about what we wanted to be, what we wanted to build. If we wanted to build it together, what that looked like is our thesis and ideology on the business the same. Do we look at the business the same? And what kind of culture do we care about? And so this is a great often overlooked. Yeah, because no, go ahead. Because how did you? It's often overlooked because you mentioned Eric Sidman. He is someone who has a, had a great individual career, and I did deals with him at our previous firm, Town. And he's he's a Brooklyn expert. And what we're seeing in the market now is people are not just moving to Brooklyn because there's a little bit of a value proposition versus downtown Manhattan. They're also moving because it's less frenetic. There's a different lifestyle that's associated with Brooklyn and it's the pace is slightly different. And for a lot of people that buys time before they have to go to the suburbs. And Clayton and myself looked at this and said, I've never done a deal in Brooklyn. I don't know the streets in Brooklyn. I don't know the neighborhoods in Brooklyn. In fact, when I go to Brooklyn, I call Eric and ask him how to get there. Do I take the subway? Do I take a car? Hi. This is my friend outside of being a partner of ours. Um, but that goes back into our vision of the team and our vision of the business, which is hire the expert, be the local expert, and stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. I don't want somebody that I have to train. I, for better or worse, I don't have the time to. I'm here to foster someone's career and help them grow. 
because I see their potential and exactly. I know that they're an expert in whatever their zone is. Exactly. So here's to give us some perspective on the team. Let's go backwards for a minute and talk about what, how is your team structured? How many agents, how many assistants, how does it, how does it function? What's the infrastructure of it? So we have no assistants to be clear. Uh, we wow. have, we have two, um, we have two, individuals in our back office. I call it our back office. Clayton, my partner, calls it the harvesting team. He, he always refers to hunters and harvesters. Okay. Um, I call it the back office because they run the operation. We all, Clayton and myself, both have a hand in it and oversee it, um, but they're the ones that are all day in the office making sure that, you know, I always say they're steering the ship, making sure it doesn't veer off course, making sure that we have 40 listings at any time. And at any moment, we need to change a marketing initiative. We need to change pricing. We need to marketing contract. Mm -hmm. We liaise with attorneys or building management. The client could be calling. If I'm out with a buyer, or I'm out showing property. I can't do all of that at the same time. Yeah. To be clear. Those are not mundane administrative tasks. No one manages my calendar. I manage my own calendar. So this mm -hmm. is not, and again, that's not to, to, to take a shot at someone who has a different structure than we do, but we're very much of the mindset that, we want the, the back office to be thinking as high level as we are and to be forward thinking. And I think if somebody's busy managing my calendar and reminding me about a, a lunch meeting I have, they're, they're in the weeds. And there's a saying, he who works all day has no time to make money. And that's, that's how we think about this as well. He who works all day has no time to make money. And, and I, didn't, I didn't make up the quote, unfortunately, for better or worse. So I'm going to rephrase it and say, he or she who works all day has no time uh, to make money. That's okay. You're all, you're good with me. I, I even missed it. Like for everyone. I'm so I'm I'm, I'm so much you. older than you. I'm like all that stuff's still over my head. Um, I, I like for you know I don't even think about it. Then that's great. You're right. I guess. Or how about she who works all day? I'll take that too. Either way. Yeah. Um, so you've got two operations, two people in operations in the background, making sure basically, you know, the attorney. They're running the, they're running the business. Yeah. While, again, steering the ship. Think about how many things yeah. with $350 million closing in contract. Exactly. Yeah, Listings, things. price There's changes. Things going on all day, every day. Yeah. And that's besides the marketing component to everyone. Yeah. Listings. That's besides the social. That's besides the newsletter. That's besides the accounting. I mean, it's a laundry list that makes my head spin. And frankly, staying in my lane, that is not my lane. And it was made very clear to me when I was trying to do operations and be the CEO and be the broker and be the team leader that I was being a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. So again, the hiring the experts, we found Theodora and Spencer who run our back office and they're exceptional at what they do. And they're so good at what they do that they don't want to be real estate agents. How's that? That's awesome. Now, in that, because there are two people, do, how do they know who's going to do what? Because there is so much going on. So I think there's a level of business that each team member is producing, and there's a level of support that's sort of commensurate to that business. Um, again, a big component to not hiring green is that everybody at some point ran their own business that's on our team. Eric's perfect exactly. example. 300 million closed deals in his career so far and, and growing and growing fast. Um, mm -hmm. superstar. He ran his own business. So he has their support. He has their help and he has the systems, our proprietary systems that we built when we started our team. 
but he doesn't need them, right? They're there at support. They don't need to manage his calendar. If he, exactly. if he them to there, I'm sure they're happy to step. Well, in. as a real estate agent, it changes so much and so fast. It can be a little challenging. Well, for me, that's it's like my phone rings and I have to run somewhere. There's no time. It takes longer for me to tell someone to throw something on my calendar than it does for me to do it myself. Exactly. So, but back in the background, and then I'll we won't harp on it too long because we got other other things we want to hit on. But you, because a lot of people will say, okay. I've got support. This person's in charge of contracts. This person's in charge of listings. This person's in charge of marketing or this person's in marketing listings. This person's whatever. Did, how do you, do they kind of take on a specific role or how do they? It's a very good question. Um, I think it evolves and it's going to continue to evolve organically as with yeah. everybody's individual role on the team. And as we grow together, we'll uncover people's strengths and weaknesses. And a perfect example of this is Robert Refkin. Mm-hmm. Double down on your strengths. For five, hire someone to do your weaknesses, right? And that doesn't mean hire an employee or an assistant. Find a partner. Find someone else who's good at the things that you're not good at. Yeah. And and just be great at what you're great at. So to answer your question, I think they divide and conquer how they see fit. Now we oversee this, but I don't micromanage. If I was micromanaging them, I wouldn't have hired them. I have full faith in Spencer and Theodore to run the business in their back office as they see fit. Okay, so next as question. As long as everything gets done, then they're doing it right. So we got a few more questions, because I want to wrap, I want to hone in a little bit more on your team, but I also want to talk about your production and your sales and how you do deals, because that's a lot of fun, and we've got about 15 minutes. So tell us how many, before we get to that, I want a little bit more about your team, and the two things are how many agents are in your team, Number one, how many agents after the operation? Well, we have 12 agents. We just hired two. Ooh. So there's so 14. To, well, I'm exactly. trying to do I don't yeah. have 15 people. Two, two plus 12, 14. Right. So I was making sure it wasn't like, like, yeah, you can give me a hard time. It's good. I'm used to it. But I'm blonde, you know, somewhere. I was when I was born, whatever. But anyway, so you've got um, 12 agents, and that includes you and Clay, and right. two operations. Okay. And your agents all have their focus and their what they specialize in, and it probably covers most of New York. Absolutely. So everybody has their own business. Then we have collective team business. Um, there's certain people on the team team up with each other. We don't we don't police that or monitor that. If Ian on my team wants to work with Kirsten on my team, they work on something. They go after it together. They run it together. That's between them. Yeah. And and to date, it's worked very well that way without us kind of pairing people up and we let things happen on their own and organically. Everyone has a very unique business. I think at the same time, it all, from a culture perspective, all of our business is very similar. Our clientele is similar. Please. Can I finish what you're saying? I was just going to say our clientele is similar and our, our vision on the business and what culture means to everyone is very similar. And did you kind of strategically bring agents on that to cover all of New York or was it more of a, you're a good fit to our culture and you are a great agent and you work well with us. I've always been of the mindset that you hire talent and then you figure out kind of where that talent is best utilized. Um, I think it's a hybrid. I think naturally certain people specialize in certain things. Exactly. So for example, I met Kirsten on my team doing a deal. Um, We were on other sides of a deal. I met Clayton, my partner doing a deal. We were on other sides of the deal. I met Eric on my team doing a deal. We were on other sides of the deal. So it was really, I like this, I like this person as a person. 
I like how they conduct their business. I like how they're representing their client. And I think they'd be really good as my business grows and our team grows. I think they'd be good to work with. And as the Here's team another... grew, we started hiring. Yeah. And another question on top of that, because when you, because you, you hire really successful agents. I mean, Eric's a great example who's on the show, who's done over 300 million. I mean, most people tout about that for a full career and the guy's just getting started and he's just getting started. Right. Exactly. So that being said, you know, how do you, how do wide agents join your team when they're that successful already? It's interesting. A lot of it is incoming, believe it or not. Um, I think that there is a, there is a perception in the market that we're very hungry. We're very focused in a market where a lot of people are licking their wounds and singing the blues. We're having a lot of success. We, spend a tremendous time on brand integrity, a tremendous time on our systems. I think a lot of time is lost when an agent wins a listing and they bring it in, you know, to their system and then there is no system and they have to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. I saw the market changing again, taking a step back and thinking, being forward thinking and trying to think about the future and the cyclicality, if you will, of our market. I saw the market changing in 2016. And I knew that it was, we were going to get to a point where the liquidation periods got longer. The sales cycle got longer. You're not signing three or six months exclusives because it's going to take a year plus to sell luxury property. And yeah. when that happened to me, and I felt in real time, I lost listings. I had listings we had to turn to rentals. You know, I, I think at last year, there was about $30 million in listings that I either had that we lost. This is myself, um, either lost or had to turn to rentals. And that was painful to have nine months of mileage on, on a listing and not end up being successful with it was not fun. And this yeah. actually happened in 2017. When that happened, took a step back and we built our systems on, okay, when we get these listings, how do we automate a system where it's top of mind every single week and there's a roadmap every month and the client knows what's going on at all times? Because my job is to have my clients so informed about the market and so informed on their competition and so informed what's happening from a marketing standpoint that they don't ever have to call me. And the Which only awesome. time I have to talk to them is when I have an offer for them. And Eric and I talk about that. Eric and I talk about that on the show that's already released before yours um, a little bit. But no, that's like, there's like three things already, like we have to talk more, but we're, we're limited on time. So I want one more question and I've got one more and then I've got the final three we do for every show. The one more big special question. I wish I, I wish I studied those three questions. Just for Steven. Oh no, absolutely not. It's no way. It's not nearly we're, as we're, much fun. We're, we're just shooting off the head here. Not nearly as much fun if you know the questions ahead of time. Eric. So what we've talked about this a little bit, but what would you say is the best deal you've ever done? And what did you learn from it? Oh, um, best deal or favorite deal? I think I think you decide which one you want to tell us about. Um, well, there's one you did. I think everybody needs to know, even if we don't want to elaborate on it. That was fifty-four million. Fifty-four seven fifty. Yeah, fifty-four seven fifty. I'll tell that one. I'll tell that one. Um, okay. And I'll 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 keep it as short and sweet as possible. I sold the last building. It was five seventeen dash five nineteen West Twenty Ninth Street, and it was the last building to sell off the High Line. And this was, you know, our market in many respects peaked in, in the second quarter in 2015. Obviously, the, the curse of real estate, so to say, is that you don't have that data in real time. So yeah. 
the trails. And I put this in contract um, Q4 of 15, really kind of trickled into Q1 of 16. And it was, it's directly across the street from Sori Highline, which is a compass project. Um, shout out to James Morgan. Oh, wow. Um, and I sold this building for 50, just shy of 55 million. And it took about 15 months to close. And let's just say um, I'd look younger if, if it didn't take 15 months to close. It was a very painful deal. It got adjourned seven times. I remember I got calls from both sides at the closing table, at the contract signing. Hey, you need to cut your fee. Hey, you need to cut your fee. And, you know, this was three years into my career, I, I had put this deal in contract. And this is a monumental deal. It was the biggest deal at my old company town. And I remember calling the CEO and saying, hey, it's a $55 million deal. You know, they're asking me to cut my fee. Feels reasonable. And he said, right. turn your effing phone off now. Except I, I know that word wasn't effing, especially not in New York City, maybe in Atlanta. Effing, and not with my old CEO. Uh, but it was a... And then it was, what do you mean? If I'm not available, what if something happens at the closing? He said, Stephen, it's a $55 million deal. Nothing's going to, it's either going to close or it's not. If it doesn't close, it's not you. Not it's today. Not you. And he said to me, where are you? I'll come pick you up right now. And he was just going to like take me to a bar or take me out and like literally take my phone and turn it off because he, he was a developer in his background. So he knew exactly what was happening. This was closing either way. No developers can listen to this interview, by the way. Yeah, I, I love this. And by the way, I hope they call me at the closing on the next building I sell and I tell them I'm not changing my fee because I learned a lot from this deal. But yeah. what it, the, the advice I got from that, which was great advice, and I tell it to friends all the time who are particularly in the commercial sector, because um, I'm not a commercial broker, but I've sold five buildings. Um, so I have wow. some experience in it. And you know a little what, about it. What I learned was it's going to close whether it's going to close if it closes or doesn't. It's on them. It's not on the X dollars the broker's making. Not so on the day. Literally, took my phone. There's a big closing. I turn it off. That's awesome. That's what do you, so? What do you think your biggest lesson was in that? My biggest lesson was to turn my phone off at a big closing. If you're not present and it's a developer. See, I'm getting yeah. deep with it. I'm like, sometimes you've done what you can do and you've just got to let the deal happen. And, and I just think let it happen. That, you know, hindsight's obviously 2020, but I think that as your career grows and as you, as you do more and more of the larger transactions, yeah, you'll realize that your job is to put the deal together and to represent your client to the best of your ability and, and always in their best interests. And when it gets to the one yard line, it's going to happen or it's not. And you can exactly. only push it so far. And that's not yeah. to say don't keep pushing and don't keep trying and to give up. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is these things, particularly a deal like that, it's going to close or it's not. Exactly. No, I'd love it. I mean, it's, I mean, I, we could share more stories on that in our career, especially the more, the longer you're in business, you the see more you, kind of, you start to figure out you know, here's, we, I put the deal together, the deal's here. And at some point it, it's up to the buyer and seller to do the deal or not. And there's only so much brokering that can happen after right. a contract's been signed on a development site that's going to be demoed. There's exactly. no walkthrough issues. There's no, we already did our environmental testing. I mean, everything was done and the, the, the checklist was checked off. 
right? Okay. I, I did everything that was in my world to do. It was now bank, the buyer, the seller, do it or don't. And this story, everybody, is a lot more fun with a little more time, especially, but especially and a drink. when you're- And a drink. Yeah. I mean, but it's a fun story now, but there's so much to it and what you went through and how oh, hard yeah. you worked for it. And, yeah. thir you know, 15 months and the emotions and the roller coaster ride that we all go through in this industry and how hard we work and how stuff happens and doesn't happen. And it's incredible. So, final three questions. Number Let's one, go. shoot fast. We got to do the final three. We got three minutes. Let's do it. Number one, what is the best tool that you think you've applied to your business other than your phone? Hmm. If it's a CRM, if it's an app, if it's a, whatever it might be. The best tool. Huh. My personality. Kidding. I love it. That's everybody's best tool. Well, maybe. Um, my best tool, believe it or not, is probably Excel. I, oh. I live on an Excel sheet. I'm super analytical, particularly the business we do because it is in the luxury market. You know, townhouse deals, for example, square footage is allocated differently on every home. It's, some could be subgrade and it's not disclosed. Some people incorporate backyard so space. you deal with that in your market too. Yeah. Okay. And so for me, I live on Excel because my clients are extremely intelligent. And Leonard always says, time is the last luxury. My, my job is to save them time as much as everything else that goes into our job. And that takes a lot of time, but it gets a lot of information. For sure. And, and again, information. men lie, women lie, numbers down. Men and women who do numbers sometimes do lie, but we'll get into that later. That's the you can spin question. the hell out of a number, fourth but question. that's, I'm just having fun with you. What's that? That's the fourth question. The fourth, oh yeah, there you go. Okay, next question. If there's a book that you would recommend that's most impacted career, life, whatever it might be that we have to read, what is it? I'm gonna give you two and because, oh, I, because I can't pick one and I, someone else just asked me this question yesterday. Uh, what it takes, Stephen Schwartzman, incredible. incredible what it takes, book. Stephen Schwartzman. Yep, and uh, who you are is what you do. I recommend that to every team leader. It's about building culture and how culture impacts business and sustainability and longevity. And as I'm trying to grow into more of a leadership role, uh, I take that more and more seriously because I see it more and more on a day to day. I think, I think if I had to pick one of those two, I'd, I'd pick that. And what, so your takeaway on what, who you are is, is who you are is what you do is culture, what it takes, what's the takeaway on that? Everyone needs to read it blind. I'm not giving any. Oh, book. good. It's good. Awesome. And it's, and it's everybody in any business should read that book. Last question. If there's one thing that if, if we were only going to take away one thing from this interview, what should we absolutely make sure that is? Pick the right partner and have the right vision. Pick the right partner and see where I was going to ask you about picking the right partner, pick the right partner and have the right vision or. Yeah. Have the right okay. vision. Just making sure I got there's, that right. Thing, I'm, in a butcher. That. I'm sure I'm not going to get this right, but I think it's, um, be stubborn on, on vision, but flexible on how you get there. And, and that's mm. our attitude. Clayton and I are very, very similar people. Stylistically, a lot of people from the outside look at us. The people think we're brothers all the time. Um, how we look at the business is identical to one another. That being said, there are many conversations we have. I start left, he'll start right. 
literally 15 to 30 seconds later, we're both in the middle, it's done. And once we make a decision, we stick by it and stand by the decision and we go. And I think that's, that's something that has been extremely successful and also something that is built a very strong foundation and made our partnership sustainable. That's, it's like the two of you together almost make, and not to make the synonym or analogy or metaphor or whatever, but you're like a, almost like a compass because you might go off in one direction and he's in another, but by working together, you stay in the right direction. And to that, our, a lot of our strengths are very similar, but I'm very good at the things that he's not as good at, and he's very good at the things that I'm not as good at. So it's very complimentary, complimentary to each other. That's awesome. Thanks for an awesome interview. It was short, it was, it was short and sweet. I had to speak fast because we were short on time, but I, I enjoyed it. I know. It.